This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. And online at SBNationLive.com. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Welcome back to the Talk of Fame Network. I'm Rick Goslin, and as usual... I'm with my friend and fellow Hall of Fame voter, Ron Borges, today. But the third member of our weekly trio, Clark Judge, like the 32 NFL teams, is already on vacation as we close out our fifth year on the air. Ron, this is the one dark month in the calendar for NFL teams. They shut their buildings down at the close of OTAs in late June, then reopened to pack up for training camp in late July. That gives the players a month to recharge their bodies and the coaches a month to recharge their minds. So, Ron, what's Clark recharging these days? Well, Goose, I imagine he's recharging his tractor so he can keep haying the back 40 on that palatial Connecticut estate where he apparently lives with Le'Veon Bell, neither of whom uh, show up. They work out on their own. Good for that. Ron, you and I broke into this business in the 1970s when the NFL actually had an offseason. It lasted several months, not just 30 days. After a team was knocked out of the playoff contention, the players would be off until the team staged an annual post-draft minicamp in April. Then they'd be off until team broke for training camp in mid-July. Back then, the players went to camp actually to get in shape. Today, they're never really out of shape. So with a heightened concern over player safety, Ron, I have a simple question for you. Which was better, a one-month offseason season? Or a five-month off season. <laughs> That's easy. Five months off. What are you kidding me? It's like being a European. That's <laughs> the way to go. And I think that the players were better off for it. Uh, you know, guys came in. They weren't beating themselves up before they were beating themselves up. I think the way they did it then actually, uh, and for the long term, worked better. Now, when's the last time you were in shape and in condition 12 months out of the year? <laughs> well, if round is a shape, I'm always... <laughs> Okay, with with all the OTAs, minicamps, and weight training sessions through mid-June, are NFL bodies now overtrained? Is that one of the reasons there's always a spike in NFL injuries in August and September? I think so. I, I think, uh, you know, like any other piece of machinery, you, know, you can burn it out. And I think that a lot of these guys are doing that. I also think the fact that they don't hit uh, much at all, and then all of a sudden, bang, they're into the season and they're knocking each other out and their bodies aren't hardened enough and, and ready for it. We think we've got an entertaining show for you today. We're going to visit with legendary coach Bob Stoops, who won a national title at Oklahoma and will be coaching the XFL team in Dallas in 2020, plus Patrick Manley, one of the NFL's greatest deep snappers. We'll be right back. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Welcome back to the Talk of Fame Network, where this week our trio has become a tandem. Our congenial host, Clark Judge, has already started his summer vacation. But Ron Borges and I are going to be going to wait a week before we start ours. So, Ron, what are your plans for the summer? A lot of golf, a trip to Niagara Falls and Toronto to go to the Hockey Hall of Fame with my wife and son. Then I'll be sharpening my skates at the beginning of hockey season, which starts, believe it or not, by mid-August. <laughs> well, I know where you'll be a month from now. That's Canton, Ohio, for the induction into the Pro Football Hall of Fame of Ty Law. That'll be a pleasant way for you to wrap up your summer. As the Boston rep on the selection committee, you made the presentation that propelled Law into the Hall of Fame's class of 2019. So kudos to you for that. We've both been to our fair share of these enshrinements. 
As a longtime boxing writer and voter, you've also been to the induction ceremonies of the Boxing Hall of Fame in Canastota, Canastota New York. Can you compare the two for us? Yeah, goes. I'll tell you, the Boxing Hall, uh, as you might imagine, is it's just more fan-friendly in terms of mixing the inductees in with the fans. Uh, you know, they have daily autograph uh, sessions. They visit local hospitals, retirement homes. They spend a lot of time just sort of milling around the grounds uh, where the public is. Um, one of the years, uh, years of inductees, my dear friend Teddy Atlas, told me this is heaven for boxers and for boxing fans. And he's right. You know, pro football is a little more uh, orchestrated TV show, I would say. Uh, there seems to be a little, a lot less of the uh, actual inductees meeting with the fans. Uh, a lot of people between buffer between the two of them. But the speeches and the emotions, they're the same in both. Everything's real, it's raw, it's, it's, you know, Goose, very moving. Which one was your favorite uh, acceptance speech in the Boxing Hall of Fame? Boy, there's actually been uh, uh, so many that were that were really great. And Marvin Hagel was was really terrific. I mean, he was a boxer I spent a lot of time with. Uh, I knew him when he was uh, working as a mason tender and boxing on the side. So uh, he was so uh, emotional and proud to be there. Uh, I would say he was probably as moved as anybody I've ever seen. How about football? Any of those stand up? Boy, it's just a million great ones. Brett Favre was great. I mean, uh, 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 as you'll remember, uh, I thought Michael Irvin was terrific. I mean, they were talking about raw emotion uh, of a guy uh, talking about his life and how he uh, how he got there. Uh, but there's really been a string of those kinds of, of speeches. Yeah. I thought it was, it was great, but Irvin really stands out and Favre. Cracked yeah. me up, as, as he did when he was on the show with us. <laughs> you know, Ryan, you and I are also members of the Baseball Writers Association of America, which allows us to vote on the Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, New York. I've been to one time there to see my good friend Tracy Ringles be inducted into the writer's wing back in 2005. Have you been to any enshrinements there, Ron? And you, can you compare the baseball and football induction weekends? Yeah, I have been there, and, and they're a lot uh, alike, um, uh, including in the way there seems to be a growing wall of handlers between fans and their and their idols. Uh, they both have a great parade through town, as I'm sure you remember. Uh, Boxing mm-hmm. Hall of Fame does the same thing. Uh, I remember when I went, uh, I was pretty excited to see guys that were my boyhood idols, you know, like Hank Aaron uh, and, and Sandy Koufax and those cars going through. Uh, and my uh, my son, who was about 10 years old at the time, seeing, you know, the guys that, that, that he loves uh, and the names that he had heard. So it was, uh, they're, they're a lot uh, alike in a lot of ways. Uh, Cooperstown is such a cool little tiny town. That's the other thing that, that makes it special. Ron, it's time for my favorite segment of every show, Dr. Dan. Why is Love it my it. favorite segment? Because I get to talk for about five minutes without any interruptions from Ron or Clark. Today, I'll be churning some data on first-place schedules. The NFL is a league built to produce parity. The better you are, the more difficult the NFL makes it to repeat that success. The draft is a key component. The worse a team is, the higher it gets to draft, and logically, the better players it can add. The Super Bowl champion is assigned the last pick of the first round and every round thereafter. The picking isn't as ripe down there. The schedule is the other key component. The worse a team is, the easier it's scheduled the next season. And the better a team is, logically, the tougher it's scheduled. Each team plays its six division games plus four against another division from its conference, and four more from a division in the other conference. For instance, the Patriots play six games in the AFC East this season, plus four games against AFC North, and four more against the NFC East. That leaves two remaining games. Because the Patriots finished in first place, 
they must play the other two first-place teams in the AFC, the Chiefs and the Texans. Thus, they play a first-place schedule. The second-place finish, finisher in the AFC East draws the AFC's other two second-place finishers. The third-place finisher in AFC's East, uh, the other two third-place finishers, and so on. That hasn't been a problem for the Patriots. Since the NFL realigned into eight divisions in 2002, the Patriots have won 15 of the 17 AFC East titles. Despite almost annually playing a first-place schedule, the Patriots have improved their record four times and matched their record four other times. So it really doesn't matter who New England plays. They're still the Patriots. Not so the Dallas Cowboys. The Cowboys won four division titles from 2002 until 2017. Faced with a first-place schedule the following seasons, the Cowboys failed to return to the playoffs in any of the four. Twice their victory count fell off by four games, once by five, and another by eight, which will make 2019 interesting for the Cowboys. They're coming off another NFC East title with a 10-6 record. The first-place schedule in 2019 assigns them games against defending NFC champion the Los Angeles Rams and the New Orleans Saints. Because the NFC East draws both the AFC East and NFC North this season, the Cowboys will also play division champions the Patriots and Bears. The Cowboys figure to be the underdog in at least three of those games. Now, Dallas has Super Bowl aspirations this season. To turn them into a reality, the Cowboys must master something they haven't been able to master in four previous tries, that first-place schedule. The future of head coach Jason Garrett could hang in the balance. Well, Goose, um, who would you say is the outlier in this situation? The, the Patriots and how they've performed with these first-place schedules? Uh, or the Cowboys, with, uh, as you point out, staggered around. Do most of these first-place teams end up staggering around? Okay, there have been 128 division champions crowned from 2002 to 2017. Only 57 of them repeated as division champions. The Patriots did it 13 times. The Colts did it six times. And the Packers did it five times. That's 24 of, of the 57, that leaves 33 other uh, repeat champions among the other 29 teams. You see a lot of teams go from worst to first for the same reason. You get that last place schedule, it's easier to win games. That first game place schedule, you, and the Cowboys this year, they got Rodgers and Brady in, in the first place schedule. I mean, it's going to be a bear for them. I, I think the, the outlier is clearly the Patriots. What they've done is, is absolutely amazing. They shouldn't be able to repeat year after year after year with the deck continually stacked against them, but they do. Yeah, I think the Patriots, of course, have the advantage. They play the Jets, the Dolphins. <laughs> the Dolphins are <laughs> six wins right there. Uh, some of these other divisions seem to be more uh, competitive. Do you think that this needs to be shaken up? Do they have to? You know, Bert Bell, back in the day when he was doing the schedule on the kitchen table in, in Philadelphia, yeah. uh, started a thing where the worst teams played the worst teams early in the season, the best teams played the best, which used to really piss off George Howes and some of those coaches because he wanted to keep interest until the end of the season. Uh, does this need to, uh, need a shake-up or, or not so because it just seems to be New England that uh, doesn't matter? No, you look at the three teams that I talked about. The, the Patriots have Brady, the Colts had Manning and Luck, and the, the Packers, they had Favre and Rodgers. It's, it's about the quarterback. You know, when, when, when your quarterback position takes a step backward, you take a step backward. 
you know, we, we've been waiting for about 10 years. The Patriots take that step backward. Brady keeps on going. You know, I, I don't think there's a need for a change. Um, I just think it's cyclical. The, the teams, the great quarterbacks, have a better chance of repeating. Well, if, if this thing doesn't work out uh, for Dallas, as, as you hint, the future of Jason Garrett may be uh, um, less than good, shall we say. Now, you know Jerry Jones is better than just about anybody. Any chance he could go to him if things don't work out at the end of the season and say, you know, let me and Goose explain to you about first-place schedules and not and how that affects my coaching. Could, could no. that possibly save him? No, I think he, what he's got to do is go out and hire Bill Belichick. Ron, oh, we'll get Tom Brady, too. Right. It's time to pay some more bills with another commercial break. When we return, Ron and I will kick around the future of spring football in the sporting calendar. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. Sixteen-year-old. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Welcome back to the Talk of Fame Network. And Ron, we've got Bob Stoops coming up in the next segment, so let's tee up the discussion on spring football. The USFL had a three-year run as a spring league in the mid-'80s as out-of-season competition for the NFL. At least the USFL competed for players and landed some really big fish in Reggie White, Herschel Walker, Jim Kelly, and Anthony Carter. But the league crashed in 1986 with a failed move to the fall. The World League then had a multi-year run in the 1990s as a developmental league for the NFL, funded directly by the NFL, with teams in play based in Europe. But the NFL didn't believe they were getting enough bang for the bucks. They eventually pulled the plug. The XFL had a one-year run in 2001, but a lack of star power and a lack of television viewers led league founder and WWF heavyweight Vince McMahon to label it, quote, a colossal failure. This spring, the Alliance of American Football gave it a go, short-lived as it was. The Alliance was supposed to be a developmental league for the NFL, but the NFL didn't sink any money into the venture. A lack of funding forced the Alliance to shut down after only eight weeks. Next up, the second coming of the XFL this coming February or so. Which begs a question, Ron, is there a place in the spring sporting calendar for football? Well, I know you disagree, Goose, but above the Mason-Dixon line, I don't think so. Uh, and there's growing evidence that in many areas, even below the Mason-Dixon line, it just doesn't work. Uh, you can't have major league expenses uh, and charge nearly major league prices for minor league ball, which is what a developmental league really is. You know, it works in baseball because it's the, it's a tradition and the major league support uh, these minor league teams financially, uh, and with players, because they know they need a developmental league. Uh, while I'd argue there are certainly players who would have benefited uh, if there were such a league uh, for NFL players, uh, you know, a little more seasoning, a little more experience. But the owners look at college football as the ultimate feeder system for their game. It's an endless supply of talent. So if they lose them on the guys of the week here, we got another 300 coming next year, and it costs them zero, which they love. Interesting you bring up spring training. Would it work if you put together like a six-team league in, say, the state of Florida or the state of Texas, where you had teams in, say, Orlando, Austin, uh, San Antonio, um, you know, just where, where it, it becomes a bus league? Would that work, do you think? Yeah, you know, actually that might work, especially if you, if you uh, put a lot of uh, guys that played locally. Uh, on, on those teams, and you can even try to, you know, try to find, you know, especially down that part of the country, uh, two or three uh, some great high school players, you know, who washed out in college for whatever reason, 
right. but their names are no. Uh, yeah, then it might work. I just think when they try to go national, try to go into big cities, it's just a really, really tough sell. Does any spring league need some sort of commitment, and you can read that investment from the NFL to succeed? Oh, yeah, they do. And, and uh, look, they also need the support of the union, which the alliance did not have, uh, and which they're never going to get because it means uh, exposing their membership to an elevated chance of injury without any insurance of their future compensation. That's one of the things that killed the alliance. They were hoping that union was going to sign off and allow uh, some bottom-of-the-roster young players to come and play, but the union wanted no part of it. And at one point, I understand, Bill Polian told them they could pick the players. The union could pick the players that were going to play in the alliance uh, and would be able to develop it. And he said, uh, we, we can guarantee they won't get hurt. Well, even D. Smith was smart yeah. enough to say, <laughs> how can you do that? You can't. And that's the support. Yeah, there are eight teams in the rebranded XFL, and seven of them play in existing NFL cities. Dallas, Houston, Los Angeles, New York, Seattle, Tampa, and Washington, D.C. The only non-NFL city in the mix is St. Louis, which still hopes for return to the NFL landscape. Is this a wise move or not? Shouldn't any spring league place teams in cities that... It, should any spring league place teams in cities that already know what good, field, good football uh, looks like a, a or place teams in non-NFL markets like San Antonio, Portland, Memphis, Orlando, and Birmingham, where a chance to view professional football might be more attractive. Yeah, I, I think that's really the, the wise, of course, the smaller cities for a couple of reasons. One, as you point out, they're, they're already used to major league professional football, for lack of a better phrase, and they know the difference, and they, they don't really want to pay for less. But more importantly, they also have a lot of other things going on that time of year that yeah. you're not going to have in a lot of these other seasons. They got Major League Baseball, they got NBA playoffs, they got NHL playoffs. You know, they don't really need spring football because they have uh, made other major league sports. They don't have that in a lot of these uh, places like Birmingham, where they have, you know, University of Alabama, and then they have the University of Alabama. Uh, so I think there's your best play. Those kinds of cities. You know, Vince McMahon certainly lured the right blend of head coaches for his second go-round of the XFL. June Jones, Kevin Gilbride, Jim Zorn, and Mark Trestman all served as head coaches in the NFL. And Stoops, of course, was a college football legend at Oklahoma. So how much of an impact can these coaches have on the level of play? Will it be enough to sustain a TV audience over the course of a 10-week season? Yeah, I don't think so. You've heard me say this before, Goose. You know how where I stand. Coaches watch, players play. Uh, in the end, it's the Jimmys and Joes, not the X's and O's. Uh, Hank Haney is one of the greatest golf teachers in sports history, but nobody has ever paid a nickel to watch him give a lesson. Uh, they watch <laughs> Tiger Woods, his student, hit shots. It's the same in the uh, you know in, in football. You really want to watch these Furrier put X's and O's up on a board? No, you don't. You want to watch the players play, and, and it's going to come down to the talent. Uh, and the excitement of the games. Yeah, speaking of players, you and I both know there are only eight positions that really matter, the eight starting quarterbacks of these franchises. With the likes of Jones, Gilbride, Zorn, Trestman, and Pep Hamilton coaching, this is destined to be a league driven by its offense. So are there eight quarterbacks out there who can lure and sustain interest in this league? Well, I sincerely doubt it. I mean, I'm sure there's a few. You know, like Kurt Warner, you know, working in a grocery store. Yeah. Uh, but look, they can't find 32 adequate quarterbacks to start in the NFL now on Sunday uh, in the fall. So forget the quality of backups. I mean, every team uh, says a novena 
every Saturday night that their backup never sees the field. Uh, and now you're talking about guys who, who couldn't make it as the backup to the backup. Uh, so uh, the one thing I do think that would work is you might get some interest in certain parts of the country if you added Tim Tebow playing in Florida yeah. or one of the failed Alabama quarterbacks playing for the Birmingham team but who won national championship for him but couldn't quite make it in the NFL. But in places like D.C., uh, they want to see the Redskins find a quarterback, not, uh, not watch Redskin light try to find a quarterback. Yeah, Johnny Manziel in Texas. Yeah, exactly. You could find certain guys. Uh, but in general, I think it's uh, uh, that's in short supply. You know, one thing I do like about this rebranded XFL is there will be a ninth team based in Dallas that will practice but not play games, almost a flashback to the old taxi squads in the NFL in the 60s. This way, when a player goes down with an injury in season, there will be a player at his position, in shape, ready to be called up and stepped in. Now, if we had that, we could have had someone ready to step in for Clark today. Ron, do you like do you like the extra team concept? Well, I like it in some ways. I like the fact that it's some more jobs for some more young players. You know, it's interesting to say the least. But here's the question I have: uh, Is every team going to play the same offense and the same defense? Uh, you know, if not, how ready is that call up guy really going to be to go in someplace? Uh, you know, if he goes in and becomes big successes, they're going to set back coaching for a hundred years. You know. Uh, what the, are they going to be practicing three four defense? All of a sudden, they get called up to play in a four three uh, alignment. You know, so it, it's interesting, but I'm, I'm, I'll be interested to see exactly how it works, the sort of mechanics of how it works. Yeah, speaking of interesting, this will not be your father's football. You know, among the rule changes they're talking about, the XFL will have a thirty second play clock, so it'll be a faster like game. No fair catches, no more extra point placement kits. Are any of these rules to your liking, Ron? Well, anything that speeds up these games, I, I, I like. And so 30-second clock, absolutely. Um, uh, and I love no fair catch rules. Uh, you know, it, 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 to me, that's one of the great things in the Canadian football season. you got to return it, you know, and so we'll see what, what happens. And we can all do without the extra point most of the time. Uh, the wasted time, uh, I, I would say, a lot of the time. But one thing I'd like them to resurrect is uh, the old XFL a uh, fist fight rather than the coin toss. That was the greatest thing Vince McMahon ever came up with. That was that was appointment TV. You might not watch the game, but you'd watch the coin flip. Yeah, I like they had the, the camera in the locker room before the game. You heard the coach. They had that sky cam, which the NFL kind of stole from them. Uh, they got, it took you right into the huddle. They were so – they did a lot of creative things in the XFL, and I'm sure he's going to have things – tweaks to the NFL game that uh, they're, they're going to make it watchable, but the question is, how long will people watch? Yeah, I mean, you, you know, to, for sustained viewing, you've got to have some interest, I think, in the teams themselves, not just I really love football and I just watch it endlessly, you know. Uh, I, I just think it's like my brother's retired basketball coach. He would watch, you know, 15 squirrels playing basketball. I mean, but he's the rare exception. You know, most yeah. people, you know, He'd call me up in the middle of the wintertime and watch an Eastern Illinois play Western Idaho in Boise. And you're like, what? Uh, but most people, they, they need a rooting interest. And, and that's one of the things I think is hardest for, this, for these kinds of leagues to develop. You know, what's my personal interest in this team? And that's where it comes down to individual players, I think. Yeah, and the Alliance, they had decent crowds the first weekend. They had the game televised. They had a decent, America, really good TV audience, but it, it faded so quickly on them. I'm just curious how the XFL is going to extend it beyond one week, two weeks, three weeks, five weeks, seven weeks. 
Yeah, well, you know, one of the things, of course, that hurt the alliance, which they never uh, never became public until after the fact, they had a television contract that paid them no money. Right. In fact, it was a time buy. They had to buy the time to be on TV. Uh, and, you know, boxing did that a number of years ago, and, and slowly but surely has gotten back on, on television. Uh, now there's more boxing on television probably than ever in history, right. and they're not all time, time buys anymore. Uh, but that's the thing, you know, everybody thought, well, there's some revenue coming in there from television. It turns out there was zero revenue. Not only was there no revenue, they were paying the production costs. So you need a decent TV contract to survive, that's for sure. Ron, would you be in favor of the Talk of Fame Network going on TV with no with no money? <laughs> we started from nowhere, and look at us today. <laughs> well, enough of us hashing over the new league. Next up, we'll have someone actually knee-deep in the new league, Bob Stoops, the head coach of the Dallas entry of the XFL. He's up after the commercial break. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Our first guest, Bob Stoops, achieved the heights as a college football coach, winning 10 Big 12 championships and a national title during a 16-year career at Oklahoma. He won almost 80% of his games before retiring from college football in 27, 2017. But after two years away from the game, Stoops is returning to the sidelines. Like his Oklahoma predecessors Bud Wilkinson, Chuck Fairbanks, and Barry Switzer, Stoops will attempt to parlay his success as a college coach into success as a pro coach. Wilkinson, Fairbanks, and Switzer all went to the NFL, and Bob has signed on as head coach of the Dallas entry of the XFL, which begins play in 2020. And Bob is visiting with us today to talk about the XFL and his career. Bob Stoops, welcome to the show. Hey, guys. Great to be with you. Hey, Bob, when you retired from Oklahoma in June of 2017, at the age of 56, was there a thought in the back of your mind that one day you would return to coaching, or did you consider yourself out of the game for good? No, I, I had considered myself out of the game for good. And, uh, you know, I had my reasons and uh, felt comfortable with it. Though I knew how hard it would be and how different it would be, I, I was aware of all that, and uh, and I was out for good. And this league, as you're you know you're going to get to this, at the time I left, the XFL and this operation wasn't in existence, so I was out, you know, in, in my mind. Okay, with your success at Oklahoma, if you had put the word out, you likely could have written your own ticket to another elite Power 5 coaching gig. So why the XFL? Well, that's true. Uh, there, there's still people that inquire as if I would have interest or try my agent or people to, to, to get to me if I would have interest. And I, if I was if I was going to do that, I would have stayed at Oklahoma. There was no alarming or whatever reason to leave. Uh, so, no, I, I, I wasn't looking to do something else. But when Oliver Luck called me, initially I had some inquiries from other people and, and to my agent about the XFL. And initially I said, I'm not interested. And then when Oliver Luck called me and we, we got to talking more and more about it, my wife and I sat down and started thinking about it a little bit more. And, and the fact that uh, the fact that you could, you know, I could uh, uh, got my entire summer and fall. I could watch my son and OU play in the fall. The worst months of the year to golf are February, March, April out in this area of the country. And I thought, you know what? This, this is a 10-game schedule. 
the proximity to Dallas works for my family, my kids, and my wife to travel back and forth to, you know, to be down there part-time. It all seemed to fit. And, and I believe in Oliver Luck, who's a, who's a really serious guy that's been an accomplished guy, and Vince McMahon, who's uh, also, you, you, you can't deny his accomplishments and his success. So I, I, and I knew they wanted to play real and good football, which, you know, which mattered to me. I wasn't going to get in something that wasn't really good football. So the more I kept thinking about it with Oliver, I called him back after a few days. And I said, you know what, I, this fits me. Uh, you know, for this period of time, it eats up a, a pocket of the year that I think will work really well for my family and I at this point in my life. Did, did you visit with McMahon much, and what were your impressions of Vince? I thought he was awesome. No, we had a good conversation on the phone, and uh, I thought he was great. You know what? Talking to him was like talking to another head coach somewhere. You know, it was like talking to my different head coaching colleagues here or there that, you know, a guy that knows what he wants to do. He's very serious about having success and, you know, uh, you know his, his vision for what he wanted. And so all of it together, I, I was very impressed with him. Well, Bobby, you talked about familiarity. And Oklahoma, of course, played the Red River rivalry against Texas every year at the Cotton Bowl. Uh, that's where you'll be playing your games. That's a definite feeling of familiarity. Was that at all part of the attraction of becoming head coach of the Dallas XFL team? Well, no, that's not exactly. That's not true. We're not playing at the Cotton Bowl or at the Red. At, we're playing in the uh, Texas Rangers Stadium. Uh, the Rangers are moving across the street to a new facility that's being built the following year, and they're gonna they're uh, retrofitting the the uh, baseball field in the Rangers Stadium to hold soccer games and football games. So they're going to make that in a, in a venue, as, you know, for whether it be high school playoff games, soccer games, uh, football games, and that, that'll be our home field and our home facility. Uh, again, the Texas Rangers uh, Stadium, which is Globe uh, Globe Life Park uh, Stadium. Playing a baseball park, of course, there's some history in, in uh, the old days of the NFL, back when Rick and I were young fellas. Uh, football teams playing a baseball. So I used to cover the Raiders. Uh, when they played the Oakland Coliseum, and uh, Cliff Branch was the master of running defenders and in front of the end zone, he could run them right into the fence. It was great. <laughs> it was a great thing. You're gonna have to <laughs> yeah, it'll be your di- offense at all. I for think the field. it'll be awesome. No, it's a great venue, and it's only I don't know. It's not only maybe 20 years old, so uh, so it's a really great venue. You know, parking's great there. They got Texas Live, a big restaurant bar area that that holds a ton of people so i I think it's going to work out really well have you talked to uh barry switzer or anyone else about uh the coaching transition from college football to pro football not really um i've talked to coach switzer all the time in fact i was at an event last evening with him spent a lot of time with him and uh you know i went um i went down and watched coach spurrier ahead of the aaf's uh season watched his practice for a day you know, we talk a lot, and so, but I, I didn't. You know, we don't talk about too many things in, in regard to it. What I what I'm looking forward to it. What I saw the first ten minutes I watched Coach uh, Spurrier's practice is working with older players, working with guys that understand already football. They have they, they most of them had, you know, accomplished college careers. Some of them that played in the NFL already, and are just outside of the NFL. So these, working with these older guys, they know a lot of football. 
and, and uh, I'm looking forward to that. You know, working with these these guys that are more mature and uh, you know already know the game so well. Bob, the XFL will be a different game from what football fans have been watching on Saturdays and Sundays. There will be, among other rule changes, no extra point kicks, no fair catches on punts, a quick 30-second play clock, and tap penalties when a player is sent off the field for play instead of his team being penalized yardage. So, have you got the XFL game figured out yet? Well, you know, there, truthfully, there, there are no rule changes that are in stone yet. Everything is still being experimented with and, and analyzed. So uh, nothing has been fully decided. But for the most part, it's still going to be football, as you see on Saturdays and Sundays, uh, with, you know, with some modifications maybe for overtime, some modifications for an extra point. The main part of the football, though, is still going to be what you're used to watching. You know, um, how exciting is watching an extra point anyway? Right. So, let's face it. That's it's just a waste of time. So, and I, that's not true. I get it. You know, there's a point there, and something could happen. But you know, but the chances of it happening are pretty minuscule. So anyway, so uh, so we're going to have maybe a little more excitement in some key areas. Period. But other than that, it's great football to watch, and exciting football to watch. Yeah, I covered the first XFL game, the first go round with Vince. And that game was unlike any I'd ever seen. There were so many creative things done. So I'm sure there are going to be a lot of creative things done uh, in, in the relaunch here. Well, I think some creative in a smart way that, that, that are still good football. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that part of it, yes, uh, there will be. But does, is it going to look a lot different than uh, Let's face it. Do you need to change really good football that everybody loves to watch right now? So I think the changes we'll have, like in overtime uh, or, you know, or an extra point, some subtle changes will be exciting to people, but it's still really good football. Yeah. Um, I don't think we're going to have a mad scramble with two guys fighting for the ball <laughs> to start the game. You know what I'm saying? I love so that. I think some of it. Yeah, I didn't. <laughs> that, made me turn, that made me turn it off immediately. So what I'm saying is, you know, there, there's, I don't know. We, we've got a great product in, in football and the college level and the, and the NFL level. Let's make sure we're, you know, we, we stay in line with what people enjoy watching. You know, Bob, the league you is going to need... With, with some modifications that can improve it. Like, I, I don't, I'm just personally, I, I don't think the NFL rule in overtime is fair. I mean, Kansas City and, and New England go to overtime, and one of the best players in, in the NFL doesn't get to touch the ball in overtime. That's Patrick Mahomes. Yeah. That doesn't work for me. I mean, that that turns me off. I'm like, ah, that that doesn't seem that doesn't seem right. You know, just the coin flip decided the game. Yeah. You know, speaking of Patrick Mahomes, the, the league is going to need some name players to survive, especially at the quarterback position. Are there quarterbacks out there who can fill the bill? Oh, sure. I'm. I'm you know, there'll there'll be there's plenty of quarterbacks that are just outside the NFL that are really good players, and you know we'll find them. Well, you regularly coach in front of, uh, I think, almost 90,000 fans in Oklahoma and upwards of 100,000 in bowl games sometimes. Uh, the seating capacity at Global Life, uh, I, I think, is about 25,000. Uh, will you miss that sort of more college that, game day? It, it's not 80, with that's crowd sure. being so huge and, and raucous. Yeah, it's okay. I mean, no, it's not going to be 
what OU is on a big game with 85 or 80,000 people. But that's okay. I mean, I, I understand that. And, uh, you know, and we'll, we'll have a big crowd, I hope. They're, you know, people in this part of the country love their football. And it's like I, I've said it more than, on, more than one occasion. It's, we're not looking to convert any Cowboy fans, but when their season's over uh, on the Super Bowl there in early February, put your jersey away, put ours on for about 10 games, you know. It's just a couple of months. Enjoy watching football, an exciting brand of football. And, and I, uh, you know, I believe in that area. People love their ball. It, they'll, they'll come out and watch. You worked uh, on the staff of some legendary college coaches, Hayden Fry, Bill Snyder, Steve Spurrier. Uh, who had the greatest influence on your coaching philosophy? Well, they all did uh, to some degree, of course. Uh, at different stages of my life, but it, for sure, uh, you know, Steve Spurrier is kind of a very close friend uh, to to my family, to me, and and the guy I've tried to emulate and you know model everything we did here at OU after what we did at Florida when I was uh, there. So uh, by far and away, uh, he he's had the biggest impact. But but you know, my early years, Coach Fry was incredible incredible to me. And, you know, Coach Snyder gave me one of, uh, another huge break by giving me a chance to, to be a co-defensive coordinator and call the defense. That was a huge break at a young age. Bob, last thing. At any point after you retired, did you miss the college game? Did you miss standing on that sideline? Oh, my gosh. Are you kidding me? Of, of course. I was the first year. I was like a zombie. I, I didn't know how to watch a game. I didn't know how to go to a game. <laughs> it was... Uh, it was like an out-of-body experience. You know? uh, but that didn't surprise me. So it's not like I thought I'd just walk away and after what you've done your whole life and all of a sudden it's all good. I, I knew for sure it was going to be that way, and it was. It was. I knew it was going to be hard. It was all of that and even more. But, uh, but that didn't mean it was wrong or I didn't do what I wanted to do. It just, it's just hard. You know, it, it, it was just hard to experience you know you just have to go through it and a little bit better than next year i got my fingers crossed this year will be a little bit better i'm sure it will well, it's probably good to have you back hey bob thanks for stopping by visiting us best of luck in hit your pro debut as head coach of xfl dallas and i look forward to seeing you over at globe life park thanks bob hey, hey guys great uh, great to be with you thanks for having me thanks bob thanks bob you're listening to the talk of fame network this is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Welcome back to Talk of Fame Network. Like the NFL, all things are dictated around here by whistles. That's the two-minute And there's Robert with a big whistle. Signaling it's on to the two-minute drill. So here we go. Rick, you're on the clock. Not of absent Clark Judge, Joe Namath called Tom Brady the best at answering the challenge ever. Does that make him the best quarterback ever? Joe must not have been watching in the 1940s and 50s when a guy named Otto Graham was taking a stab for Cleveland, leading the Browns to 10 consecutive championship games. Graham didn't answer the call most of his years. He answered the call every year of his career. NFL owners recently discussed how to improve HBO's Hard Knock show. Shouldn't they be worrying about approving their product and not HBO's? What were the suggestions? More cheerleaders and less football? The less the owners are involved in both football and HBO, the better. 
The NCAA is threatening to exclude California colleges from national championships because they are considering allowing athletes to earn money from use of their image and name like the NCAA already does. So what's the problem, Goose? Well, the NCAA likes to keep all the traffic on one toll road, their toll road. If there's a dollar to be made, the NCAA wants to make it, not its quote-unquote member institutions. Patriot linebacker Kyle Van Noy was on NFL Network recently explaining how New England neutralized Patrick Mahomes and put up 31 second-half points on them in the playoffs as 40 in the regular season. Does he know what neutralized means? Well, how many words did it take for Van Noy to say... The way to neutralize Patrick Mahomes is to have Tom Brady on your side. What team improved the most this offseason and why? The three teams in the AFC East with the retirement of Rob Gronkowski. He was the only New England weapon they feared, and they still couldn't cover him. What team lost the most and why? Hey Ron, I believe I just answered that question. The Patriots because Tom Brady no longer has his security blanket. Will Daniel Jones replace Eli Manning by the time uh, the leaves begin to fall? No, the leaves will already have fallen. The Giants' schedule doesn't get tough until November when the Cowboys, Bears, Packers, and Eagles all show up. The early season schedule features enough games against the Bills, Bucks, Cardinals, and Redskins for Eli to survive. That's the well, Gooseman, that's it for now. We're going to take a break. We'll be back on the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. And online at SBNationLive.com. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Welcome back to hour number two of the Talk of Fame Network. I'm Ron Borges, back with my old but not yet aged pal, Rick Goslin. In this hour, we'll visit with perhaps the most famous long snapper of all time talk about sports' most upside-down position. Before we do, I want to discuss the contract of 49er fullback Kyle, I can't even pronounce his name, Jessic, Goose will know. He just signed a four-year deal worth $21 million that over the first three years uh, will pay him $15.45 million. ESPN claims in its annual ranking of outlier deals that's 174.3% above the norm for his position. According to ESPN's analysis, Aaron Donald would need to make $108 million over three years to be similarly ahead of in the defensive tackle market. And Russell Wilson's four-year $140 million contract would need to be four years at $202.9 million to rank that far ahead of other NFL quarterbacks. So, Rick, is Kyle that much better than the rest at his position, or is it that much more valuable in the 49ers system to play fullback? Well, that seems a bit excessive for a guy who doesn't touch the ball on offense and doesn't chase quarterbacks in defense. But but the Fortnite's clearly view him as the best fullback in the NFL, or at least they're willing to pay him as such. You know, if the Niners lead the NFL in rushing with Jusick as the lead blocker, he's probably worth every penny. But but I don't see Joel Perry, John Henry Johnson, or Roger Craig anywhere in that backfield. Another possibility, Goose, is that Kyle Shanahan simply lost his mind for a guy who has carried the ball only 15 times in two years. And three of those times got stuffed on third or fourth and one, correct? Well, maybe that's a lesson Shanahan has learned. Don't hand the ball to a guy there to block an offense and tackle on special teams. Maybe GM John Lynch impressed on Shanahan. The club is paying their fullback $21 million not to touch the football. Uh, Kyle's average, uh, it's amazing, $5.3 million a year. Next closest fullback is Patrick DeMarco at less than half that at $2.1 million a year. So is that an outlier, a contractual trend? Or did someone remind the 49ers that Jim Brown was actually a fullback, so the position may be worth more than we think? Yeah, what it sounds like is a salary cap casualty waiting to happen in 2021. 
Either that or the 49ers are expecting a huge spike in the cap in 2020. That will allow all teams to overspend on their fringe players. Well, one thing is sure, Rick, I'd love to get paid like a fullback in San Francisco or like anybody else in the NFL. But I'm not, so we've got to go make some money. We'll be back in a minute. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, welcome back to Talk of Fame Network. There seems to never be a short of NFL news and issues, even when most teams are packing up and going a month-long hiatus. One issue that caught from my eye this week, Goose, is the arrival in full battle gear of Australian rugby star Valentine Holmes in the New York Jets minicamp. This guy's given up $720,000 a year in Australia playing rugby for the Cronulla Sutherland Sharks to try and latch onto a practice squad spot worth $129,000 with a jet. If he's lucky, maybe he makes the bottom of the roster spot and he gets an NFL uh, minimum, but that's still less than half his rugby contract. That makes sense to you, Goose? Well, not unless he's already financially set for life and had grown tired of rugby and wanted to try something else. As you recall, Michael Jordan did that when he left the NBA to go play minor league baseball for the White Sox. You remember that crazy right. attitude? I think he was giving up a bit more than $720,000 a year. This is a little less crazy than when Jordan did it. I was actually down there in Birmingham when he made his debut, and Terry Francona was his manager in those, in those days. It was he unbelievable. Still can't hit a, he's, he still can't hit a hook. No, you can see right off the bat he's going to play baseball. But he was a nice fellow. He bought him a nice bus. So <laughs> all that. Uh, what do you think the odds are of a rugby player making it into the NFL with zero experience in American football? Let me ask you this. What are the odds of a college football All-American making it? Much less an Australian rugby star. Greg Dortch was an All-America wide receiver and kick returner at Wake Forest who went undrafted by the NFL. He also signed as a phrase with the Jets, and I like his chances of making it better than the chance of Holmes, and I think Dorch is a long shot at best. So what does that make Holmes? Yeah, you're right. The one thing we'll know about him, if you've ever seen these rugby players, he's tough enough. <laughs> playing without a hat. He doesn't need pads. <laughs> exactly. Uh, well, another story, the Alliance of American Football may be DOA, but the hedge fund manager who was supposed to save it, Tom Dundon, isn't done with it. He's trying to get the full $70 million he invested back from the founders, claiming that the Alliance misrepresented themselves when they told him they only needed $55 million to get through the first year, when they actually needed well over $100 million. Unfortunately, Dundon also told ESPN he hadn't done his due diligence before he invested in football. Does he ever see his money again, Goose? Ron, unlike the XFL, we'll never see the Alliance again, and Dundon will never see his money I think it'd be wise for everyone. Ebersaw, Polian, Spurrier, friend of the show, Trent Richson, and Dundon, all to put the Alliance in their rearview mirror and move on. A bad experience was had by all. It was just a little more expensive for some than others. Right. I'm still waiting to hear what happened to those injured players. <laughs> they're, st- uh, they're probably still in town. Yeah, they probably, yeah, right. They probably got a big hospital bill, unfortunately, for them. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> One last issue, Goose. Uh, I saw this was raised on some uh, uh, website concerning your Dallas Cowboys and whether in another year Ezekiel Elliott may end up getting the DeMarco Murray broom treatment out of, out the door. Uh, as you will well remember, 
he set a Cowboys record in 2014, uh, but couldn't get another contract out of the Cowboys and was soon out of town. With Dak Prescott and Amari Cooper looking like they'll uh, get big deals before their contract expires at the end of this season, where does that likely leave Ezekiel Elliott in 2020? I, I think he's still very much in the picture in Dallas. Now remember, his contract will be up in 2020. He'll still be only 25 years old. You can give him another four-year deal, and that would take him to 29, which is still well within his prime. I, I just don't see the Cowboys letting a 25-year-old Zeke Elliott walk out the door. Murray was older, and, and he, was, he was pushing the wall for running backs. Elliott still got that, that uh, window wide open, I think. Well, the guy has a thousand touches already in three years, uh, you know, and that's just in real games. Who knows what's going on in practice? Although they they play putter puff football, uh, he's led the league in in carries and in rushing yards twice. But if you remember, in the year sandwiched between those two, what happened? He only lasted ten games because his body was already a mess. Uh, that's the kind of beating that leads to short your career. So, how many more seasons can he take that kind of pounding and still be a premier back? Do so they have to start protecting their investment? Well, Adrian Peterson's 34. He's still taking a pounding. You know, he's a power runner like Elliott. Uh, and he rushed for 1,000 yards last season for the Redskins. You know, I, I think Elliott will still have gas in the tank by the time he hits 30. Uh, it was Jimmy Johnson, ride a horse till he drops. And that's what the Cowboys do with Elliott. <laughs> yeah, the beauty of that, though, is in college football, you can ride those horses and kick them out the door and don't cost you anything. <laughs> <laughs> You ride this pony, he could take you right into the salary cap hell. But. Well, there's that sign again. It's time for our weekly State Your Case segment. This week, Ron's made his pitch for on our website, talkafannetwork.com, for a long-forgotten player who he believes was second only to Don Hudson among the game's pioneer receivers. So who is Jim Benton, Ron? Well, Goose, no one but the Pilgrims ever had a better Thanksgiving than Jim Benton. And very few receivers in the 1940s put up better numbers. In fact, at the time of his retirement, only one had. An NFL all-decade selection in the 40s, Jim Benton was one of the first true T-formation receivers to begin changing the plow horse game of pro football into the aerial circus it would later become. On November 22, 1945, at Detroit's Briggs Stadium, as turkeys were being carved up around America, he was carving up the Detroit Lions secretary, setting a receiving record that would stand for 40 years and revealing what the passing game's possibilities were. That afternoon, Jim Benton made 10 receptions for 303 yards, including a 70-yard touchdown catch from future Hall of Fame quarterback Bob Waterfield in the Cleveland Rams' 28-21 victory over the Lions. It was the first 300-yard receiving game in NFL history, and that number is all the more remarkable when you consider that Waterfield threw for 329 yards, meaning Benton was on the receiving end of all but 26 of those yards. Guy must have been tired. That record would stand until Stephon Page broke it in 1985 with 309 receiving yards for the Kansas City Chiefs against the San Diego Chargers. It was Jim Benton's greatest game, to be sure, but it is not the only reason he should be considered for the Hall of Fame. Drafted by the Rams in 1938, Benton was an immediate hit. He led the NFL in yards per catch his rookie season with a phenomenal 19.9 yards per reception while finishing third in receiving yards and leading the NFL with seven touchdown receptions. He would continue to pile up numbers for the Rams until 1943, when, with World War II having caused a player shortage, the Rams were forced to temporarily disband, and Benton landed with the Chicago Bears after failing his physical for military duty. Although he was not the favorite receiver of Bear quarterback Sid Luckman, 
He still managed to average 18.1 yards a catch and corralled a 26-yard touchdown pass from Luckman in Chicago's 41-21 win over the Redskins in the NFL championship game. With the Rams back in business in 1944, Benton returned to Cleveland and tripled his receptions from a year earlier and doubled his touchdown production. But it was in 1945 that he really took off. With the arrival of Waterfield that summer, Benton led the league with 1,087 receiving yards, averaged 118.6 receiving yards a game, was over 100 yards receiving in six of the nine games in which he played. He also racked up a career-high eight touchdowns and had a 37-yard touchdown reception that gave the Rams a lead they never relinquished in a 15-14 victory over the Redskins again in the NFL championship game. That day, Benton caught nine passes for 125 yards, breaking the back of the Redskins' defense in the process. Following year, 1946, he would lead the NFL again with 63 receptions, 981 receiving yards, and be named All-Pro. He would also have another remarkable receiving day for that era with 12 catches for 202 yards and two touchdowns in a 31-21 win over the Giants. Benton played one more season before retiring at the age of 31. At the time, he was second only to Hall of Famer Don Hudson in receiving in pro football history, finishing with 288 catches, 4,801 yards, and 45 touchdowns. He averaged 16.7 yards per catch in his nine-year career, won two NFL titles, was named All-Pro four times, and was chosen to the 1940s All-Decade How a receiver so productive disappeared may seem difficult to fathom today, but there's a belief among Hall of Fame voters at that time that because of World War II, it was a watered-down era with inflated stats. Maybe so. At the time of his retirement, Jim Benton was the only receiver other than Don Hudson to lead the NFL in receiving multiple times. If Don Hudson was the best, Jim Benton was next in line. Unfortunately, it's a line that never reached Canada. Ron, I knew about Jim Benton long before you did because I covered the game when Stefan paid. Really? No kidding. Yes, wow. yes sir. Still got the score sheet from it. And you probably sat in Briggs Stadium. At the- <laughs> yeah, they weren't going to let Car- Carlos Carson beat him, so they let Stefan Page beat him. <laughs> I Clark might have been there, too, back in his charge of days. <laughs> Oh. Well, thanks, Ron. We love to hear about players uh, whose time has been forgotten by football fans, and they should not be. It's time for us to take a break now. We'll be back in a minute. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Welcome back to the Talk of Fame Network. This is our final show of the season before we take our annual month off, just like the NFL teams. But before we go, we've got an interesting interview coming up soon with one of pro football's greatest deep snappers. Long snapping is one of the oddest positions in sports. Odder even than the broom guy in curling or the bow-tied official with the fedora in Australian rules football. It's a place where your view of the world at the most critical moment is pretty much always upside down. What do you make of that, Ron? Well, that's pretty much how I feel about half the time when I'm looking at the world, upside down. Uh, and that's on a good, on a good day. Uh, uh, but the best of them actually don't spend too much time looking between their legs because if they did, they'd be the Ichabod Crane of pro football. They'd be headless horsemen. Yeah. They're looking up. Ron, you have your son playing hockey, lacrosse, baseball, and even have him boxing. If I had a son, I'd teach him how to deep snap. It's a position of both wealth and security in the NFL for a player who is on the field fewer than 10 snaps per game. Well, you know, it's, it's true, and of course, with the rule change a few years ago, life's a lot easier for those long snappers than it used to be back in the day when they could jump on your head and pound yeah. your neck into, uh, into the ground. It was very kind of football to change that. But what's amazing to me is how many players 
today can make lengthy careers out of long snapping. I mean, uh, some even have made it intergenerational. Steve Deoxy played 10 years in the NFL, mostly with his head between his legs. <laughs> then he sends his son, Zach, off to a fine Ivy League college at Brown, and he graduates but ends up in the same position for the past 12 years in the NFL. That's how long he's been a long snapper with the New York Giants. If you sent your son to Brown, Goose, would you expect success defined as a head plunge manager or looking upside down at the world, or are they the same thing? Ron, here's a little trivia note for you. There are 21 deep snappers in NFL history who have played in excess of 200 games. Do, do you remember Trey Junkin from your Raider days? I do. O- I do. Only, only 18 players in NFL history played more games than Junkin, 281. He started only four of those games. He spent 19 seasons as a deep snapper with six different teams. We never had job security like that in newspapers, Ron, did we? No, we did not. No, we did not. I always wonder what it's like. You know, I, I should ask Junkin that. Actually, I, I always just wanted like nobody grows up as a kid playing you know youth football, dreaming of well, I want to have a 19 year career as a long snapper in the, in the NFL. Uh, I just wonder, you know, when they find out that that's what the tradition is, and and if it's a disappointment or if they're you know just happy to to uh, still be able to sort of live their dream every Sunday. Ron, I think you would take a 19 year NFL pension, wouldn't you? I certainly would. <laughs> Uh, Goose, uh, you're widely seen as the guru of special teams. Your special teams coaches uh, lost after your annual rankings. And more than a few uh, special teamers have bonus clauses in their contract. I mean, special teams coaches have bonus clauses in their contract if they make the top of your list. Did you ever get 10% of that action? Ron, the only perk I ever received was the fact that every team, every special teams coach and player in the NFL will always answer my phone call. Over a five-decade career covering football, that wasn't a bad perk to have. you know. And I developed some really good friends in coaching as a result. Yeah, even Bill Belichick could take your call because of that. John Harbaugh, <laughs> John Harbaugh, Bill Cower, Pretty Martin good. Levy, Pretty special teams coaches. Yeah, all good. Uh, unlike most people, you spend a good portion of your career, you know, closely following special teams. Who comes to mind when you think of the great long snappers in history, uh, and why? Well, rocket snaps—they need to be very fast and very accurate. You know, kicking is a game of split seconds. On a punt, special teams coaches want the punt off in 2.1 seconds. That's from snap to foot. Think about it—two seconds. On a placement kick, an extra point or field goal, special teams coaches want the kickoff in 1.3 seconds. That's less than a second and a half from snap to foot. Bad snaps slow the kick down. So do soft snaps. If you can snap fast and accurate, you can have 10-plus seasons of NFL employment. Guys like our next guest, Patrick Manley, David Ben of the Chargers, Jake McQuaid of the Rams in today's NFL. These guys can win games for you and play for a long, long time. I can't even blink in 2.1 seconds, I don't think. That's pretty good. Uh, Look, there's been a push lately to get special teams player of some sort in the Hall of Fame. Uh, Obviously, that creates difficult problems because there is no uh, NFL NFL team. It doesn't think it had a great gunner at some point who should be in the Hall if you're going to put Deep Tasker in there, of course, where there's been a lot of uh, talk. Uh, We've also never had a pure kicker punt returner in the Hall of Fame. Ray Guy had to all but shoot his way into Canton to become the first pure punter inducted. Yet long snapper is a legitimate position. 
It's not one as that the Aussie Joe Cardona and a lot of other guys are proving where you can make a decent living for a long, long time. Would it ever be possible in your mind to see a long snapper in the Hall of Fame, and what would be the criteria? I think we're a long way from that point. You know, like you said, look how long it took Ray Guy to get enshrined as a first punter. You know, there are only two place kickers in Canton. Um, the, the coverage aces like Steve Tasker and Bill Bates are still waiting to get in the room. Matthew Slater will face the same challenge when he becomes eligible. You could easily see the impact of a guy or a Morton Anderson or a Steve Tasker has on the game. But, but it's not easy to see the impact a Patrick Manley can have. The only time anyone notices, and when there's a bad snapper, they screw up. And I think deep snappers themselves know how long a shot they are for, for the Hall of Fame because it, at most they're playing 10 snaps a game, and that's not enough. How did it come to be that the position evolved into one uh, not handled by the regular center? You know, when I was a kid, you played center, that was part of the job. You had to get it back to the, to the punters and kickers. Uh, so what's the history of there? How did that evolve? Uh, you know, there was a stretch in the 70s and 80s where there were some tight ends that were doing it. I know Jay Novacek did, did a little deep snapping. And the backup deep snapper for the Chiefs right now is Travis Kelsey. Uh, when I was covering the Chiefs back in 83, and they had, you know, Marv Levy and, and Frank Gans, the special teams influence, they drafted a guy named Adam Lingner out of Illinois in the sixth round, uh, and he was a deep snapper. He, uh, he ended up playing uh, with the Chiefs and Bills. I think he went to a couple Super Bowls with the Bills. But that's the first time I, I really realized, you know, something that, that there's, a, that there's a, a specialist developing here that a guy's going to come in just to snap on the kicking downs. And I think we, there, there have been a handful of, of snappers since then, but what really helped was the expansion of the rosters when they established, you know, the 53 roster spots. You know, back then when you carried 40 players, your center had a snap. You know, they weren't going to carry a deep snapper. Somebody had a snap. And a lot of times um, they'd have a, a, a tryout in training camp. Who can snap? Tight end stride, uh, you know, guards, tackles, centers. You know, it was, it was another way to get back on the field. But now with the 53-player rosters, everybody's got one, and these guys are all good. The worst, the, the worst deep snapper in the NFL take would probably be in a top three 25 years ago. Well, it's funny you mentioned that uh, search for deep snappers and all that. Uh, when I was growing up, I played center, uh, and I did all the snapping until they figured out uh, that I could actually kick field goals. And this came to be after four straight, I think it was four straight guys, I know it was at least two, uh, trying out for kicker, literally – hit me in the ass with their kick. I was, and I was bent over. Uh, this finally led me to grumble, which will surprise you, Goose, that I was grumbling. I, <laughs> I said to my coach, I said, you know, I can do better than that, blindfolded. So figuring I was a wise guy, my coach says, well, let's see, big mouth. So I went up, it's up, it's good. It's up, it's good. Next thing you know, a kicker was born. Made the first field goals of my high school's history back in the late 60s, never did snapped again. But generally, the center did all the snapping at every level. So, do you think a lot of the chip was uh, obviously you mentioned the roster change, but how much is it was a safety thing too? You don't really want to be losing your starting center to three hundred pound guys jumping on the guy's neck when he's uh, you know when he's snapping for punts. Yeah, I think the days of of Mick Tanglehoff, Mike Webster, and Bruce Matthews as four down offensive linemen are over. In an era of specialization with these expanded rosters, you can afford to carry several specialists. And a deep snapper is, is one of those guys you need to carry. You absolutely need to carry them. 
You know, the NFL has become a field goal league. The average game is decided by three points or less. So you'd better have a snapper who is capable of giving your kicker a chance for that win with his foot. If you don't, you'll be out of a job and, and wishing you did have a deep snapper. But, Ron, I, I go back, you know, you and I both, you know, started watching football in the you know, late 50s, 60s, into the 70s. Yeah. Minnesota, to, during that whole run with Bud Grant, for 17 years they had the same three guys. Mick Tinglehoff snapped it, Hall of Famer. Paul Krause was a safety. He was a holder. He placed the ball, and Fred Cox kicked it. 17 years. You know, those guys were like a well-oiled machine. And yet I look at other teams. When I was covering the Chiefs and Stenbrun was there, they didn't practice special teams. You know, Stenbrun right. had to talk uh, Len Dawson into staying after practice to, to, take, to hold on snaps. And I think you saw uh, the, the, the kicking game revolution in the 70s and into the 80s. You know, I covered a game in Kansas, uh, Kansas City, Pittsburgh, 89, where the Chiefs needed to beat Pittsburgh at Pittsburgh to make the playoffs. And they won 24-21. All the points were on special teams. Uh, a block punt for a touchdown, a block field goal for a touchdown, uh, a kick return for a touchdown, and a field goal. And that was Chuck Noll didn't have a special teams coach back then. And, and that basically triggered him getting special teams coaches and everybody getting special teams coaches because they realized sure. you can lose a game on special teams. Sure. I mean, I can remember in the early 70s when I first got out to, to be with the Raiders, the kicker, the punter, and myself literally during practice would play cards in the locker room <laughs> because they had nothing to do. It was great. Those were the days. Uh, well, that's our take on the odd life of the NFL long snapper. But compared to Patrick Manley, what do we know? After we go make a few dollars, we'll, go, we'll be back to get a true inside look at an upside-down position. You're listening to Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. There's an old NFL adage, you don't appreciate a deep snapper until you don't have one. Well, the Chicago Bears got to appreciate Patrick Manley for 16 seasons, covering a franchise record 245 games. Only 50 players in NFL history played more games. His snaps helped send kicker Robbie Gould and punters Todd Sauerbrunn and Brand Maynard to Pro Bowls and also helped the Bears finish first in the NFL in special teams in both 2007 and 2008. Now, Patrick has received quite an honor himself. The Patrick Manley Award has been established in his name to annually honor the best deep snapper in college football. Patrick agreed to join us today to talk about that award and his career. Patrick Manley, welcome to the show. Hey, it's great to be on with you guys, and uh, anytime I can talk long snapping and promote our job, I'll do it. Okay, let's start with the award. How did yep. it come about? Whose idea was it? And who's the title sponsor? Yeah, Kevin Gold, who is an NFL agent who has quite a few NFL long snappers, and then Chris Rubio, who was kind of the, uh, the guru of, of long snapping teaching right now for high school and college kids, and now has quite a few guys that attend the pros. Uh, they approached me and said, you know what, it's time that the long snapper gets recognized, not for the bad snaps, for all the good, but all the good they do. And uh, they said, would you like to have your name uh, on the award? And I think any time you get asked for that, you say yes. <laughs> so I was excited to have my name on the award. The guy's more excited about having the opportunity to, you know, recognize the best snapper in Division One college football. I just, I know when I was playing, 
you're always competitive. You want to be the best, and it's always nice to be recognized. So I said, Heck yeah, let's do this. And uh, we've been able to put this together. And we just had great news come out where we've uh, partnered up with Bernie's Book Bank here in Chicago. It's a nonprofit where they uh, distribute books to at-risk uh, kids here in the Chicagoland area that you know might not have a chance to be around a lot of books, a lot of literacy. And the biggest thing is going to help them, you know, learn how to read um, and, and read better. So that's. That's a great organization to be tied in with, and uh, we're excited for our, our partnership and taking this award to a little bigger of a, of a scale than we thought would happen in the first year. Hmm. Patrick, deep snapper is not a stat-friendly position. There's the occasional tackle, the occasional fumble recovery, the occasional bad snap. So just how will the Patrick Manley Award determine the best deep snapper in college football every year? What's the criteria? Yeah, we've got, we've got a little bit of that. Yeah, we get a lot of questions about that, too, because... You know, a lot of people don't know about long snapping, but, um, you know, I think as a long snapper, you know how to break them all down. So with Kevin Gold being an agent and Chris Rubio being a teacher, we can definitely just kind of turn on the tape and figure it out. But there's obviously deals where you look at consistency, you look at accuracy, you look at speed. Another thing is they're going to have to play at least 75% of their games their senior year. So we've, we've narrowed it down. We're only taking the top seniors. And my joke with the guys when we were figuring it out is, why we only want to do a senior, I'm like, have you ever heard of a long snapper come out early? <laughs> so I kind of feel like those are the guys of the best. So we're going to wait till their senior year, and obviously things could change with being the first year, but right now we're going to go with that. And then um, I want to see some notable athleticism. That's something I kind of prided myself in was being able to run and tackle and uh, kind of enjoying that part of the game. So that will be the main criteria, and we've got a, a good group of, uh, of people committed to help us uh, narrow it down as the time goes on. Uh, from August 1st, we'll start the watch list. And November 16th, the semifinalists will be announced. And then the finalists will be November 23rd. And then December 14th, we're going to have a, a nice uh, deal here at Bernie's Book Tank here in Chicago. They're going to put on a nice ordeal for the top three guys, and we'll announce the winner. Well, let's, uh, Patrick, talk for a minute about your own career. Uh, first things first, uh, you know, how does one become a deep snapper? Uh, and when you were playing Pop Warner football, I doubt you dreamed, boy, one day I'm going to snap. Uh, for placements and punts and do it for 16 years in the NFL. So how did you and your game evolve from full-time football player, I guess I would say, to deep snapping special? Sure. Sure. You know, you know, you played, you know, Little League and you loved playing it all and you got to play offense, defense and all that kind of stuff. And I was no lineman, D lineman with the bigger body. Um, and as it went along, um, my brother, who's five years older, played at Notre Dame. So he came home the summer after the 1988 national championship year and realized, uh, you know, he was a highly recruited guy, but he realized he's up there at Notre Dame with a bunch of really talented guys. So he said, how can I get on the field a little bit quicker? And we were out in the front yard uh, with a ball and a pamphlet that came from Rod Dowhower, an old Atlanta Falcons coach. We were lucky to have a couple of those coaches' kids go to our high school. So we had a pipeline to to those coaches to get some information. And we took that pamphlet out in the front yard and started – working on long snapping, and like I said, my brother was five years older, so we were really focusing on him and trying to help him out during the summer. But as it went along and I kept working on it, I was better than my brother. (laughs) 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 It just kind of came natural, and um, I just kept working at it and realized from my brother wanting to do it so bad and trying to get on the field at a competitive university like Notre Dame that I took a lot of pride in it. So from all through high school, uh, I wanted to be the starting deep snapper, and I think fortunately for me, we had another kid at our school named Bill Brightbill who was good as well. So we competed every summer to try to be the starting long snapper, and fortunately I beat him out, and 
Uh, again, it's something I took pride in when I went to Duke University. I was an O-lineman, uh, played old, started O-line for two years there and continued snapping, you know, on fourth downs, ripping off the gloves and uh, taking those sweaty hands and trying to wipe them on your pants to deep snap. But um, that's how it came about. Took a lot of pride in it. And then lo and behold, I get drafted as the last pick in the sixth round by the Chicago Bears. And uh, I had grand dreams of trying to continue my O-line career, but realized quickly when you walk into a room with Big Cat Williams and you see how big guys these guys are, <laughs> that let's just worry about long snapping and make this a career. <laughs> Well, the Bears, of course, are one of the uh, NFL's oldest and most storied franchises. Uh, in celebration of the team's 100th season, the franchise has selected top 100 players of all time. Uh, it's an, obviously an illustrious list of, that includes 28 Hall of Famers and some of the most famous names in football, including my boyhood idol, Dick Butkus. Uh, mm-hmm. You also made that list, however. How much of an honor was that for you, and how much of a surprise? Um, it's, well, let's start with the honor. Cause I, I just, I never fathomed one to play 16 years in the NFL, two to play for one franchise for that long. And then for this storied franchise, you know, the George Hallis started the NFL with is, is an honor as well. And Miss McCaskey, his daughter, is still alive. And she is a wonderful lady who spoke to us at that Bears 100 celebration. So you just really felt the history when she was there. And you mentioned Dick Buckus and the other Hall of Famers to be in a room with those guys at the Bears 100 celebration is an honor. And then when you look at that list and my name was on there, I mean, I, I don't care that I'm number 100 or whatever I was, the fact I made it is, is unbelievable. And, uh, just happy to be, kind of be uh, a part of the bears history. And it is, it's just a huge honor to me. And guys, as you get older, as you know, you talk to all those hall of famers, you guys uh, work with the boat on that you start patting yourself on the back a little bit more. And I'm, I'm allowing myself to do that and look back on my career and say, wow, that was a, that was a good run and a lot of fun. You know, you played the bulk of your career before 2010 when the NFL finally established a rule to protect deep snappers. You guys were defenseless, starting each play with your head down. So the NFL finally ruled defenders were no longer allowed to line up opposite the deep snapper and crush him at the snap. So how difficult was it to play the position those first 12 seasons before that rule change? It was very hard. I mean, the rule change came at a great time. Um, my neck was just getting really beat on. I'm glad they made that change. I think one guy who retired a little too early was Mike Bartram, who was a long snapper for the Eagles, who I looked up to. Um, and I think he had a neck issue that uh, made him quit the game a little early. And I, you know, I thank God today because my neck feels a lot better and it, it didn't have to take the beating. But the hard part was keeping all that weight on and trying to be bigger and try to be stronger to take on a Sean Lee that I think there's an NFL films clip of him, and it's just him running me over on a field goal. <laughs> it sums up what we had to go through as a deep snapper. And it was hard. You, you, you leaned a lot on your, your guards to help you on field goals, and then you just hopefully didn't get rolled over. Uh, you got rolled over in less than, or excuse me, more than two seconds on a punt. <laughs> so that was the big thing. Okay, I've seen deep snappers who went entire seasons without a tackle. Their job's to make perfect snaps, not perfect tackles. But in addition to all those perfect snaps you made over 16 seasons, you made 81 career tackles. How much pride did you take in that particular contribution on special teams? Guys, that was the fun part. That was the part where you could, you know, you're an athlete being able to throw the ball back there as consistently as you can with the speed and be able to block and all that stuff. But that was the thing that I really, the word used to there was pride. I took a lot of pride in that. And I think my favorite thing would be on, you know, Mondays and film sessions that if I did have a tackle or two in a game that, I couldn't wait to turn that on with the team watching and be like, yep, I can do that too, guys. You know, I'm as good as you, Mr. Linebacker running down or Mr. Tight End. But that was the fun part. That's, I mean, that's a couple times you get blown up, but that's part of playing football. And, uh, I mean, I really enjoyed that. That was the best part of, of being a long snapper is to be out there and, 
you know, I got to tackle Deion Sanders, I think my second or third year, and I can remember laying on top of him and, you know, I'm getting off and I just kind of touched him for one extra second. I'm like, man, I just tackled Deion Sanders. (laughs) (laughs) In in your development uh, as a deep snapper, uh, you know, what tape did you watch? What guys did you uh, study? And who do you consider the gold standard of deep snapping, excluding yourself, of course? (laughs) Well, yeah, you never say yourself, but... Uh, I looked at the bigger guys, the guys that were making the transition easy for me was uh, the old linemen that did it. You know that now it's a it's a thirty two you know it's, it's a position of all thirty two teams. That's all we do now. But you know like a Dale Hellestray for the Cowboys, Adam Schreiber, Dan Turk, uh, Kendall Gammon, and then you know the other guys, David Ben, Trey Junkin, of course. And my number one, my gold standard was Mike Bartram. That was the one I mentioned him earlier that I looked at. You know he was the deep snapper for the Eagles for a long time. He made it look easy. He was very athletic. Covered well, uh, threw a great ball. Um, you know, that's the guy, you know, on Mondays or Tuesdays after watching our game tape, I would go straight to the Eagles tape and watch his snaps to see how he did and see if I could learn anything from him. There are deep snappers in the Hall of Fame. Uh, I can think of three off the top of my head. Bobby Bell, great linebacker, Bruce Matthews, and, and, and Mick Tinglehoff. Uh, but, you know, Bell, as I say, was a linebacker. Matthews was a guard, and, and Tinglehoff played center. Uh, since we're a Hall of Fame-themed show, let me ask you this. Mm-hmm. Should there be a place in Canton for a pure deep snapper? I mean, it is a legitimate position. Well, I think you guys are the ones we should be asking. No, I'm, I'm kidding. Um, I, let me start with this. I'll start with Devin Hester, and this is maybe off the subject a little bit. But, you know, my teammate Devin Hester gets in as a returner, uh, which I think he should. I think he's a Hall of Fame NFL, Hall of Fame NFL player. So, you know, you guys will, will discuss that and debate that, but I think he deserves to get in at that, uh, playing that position. And I think as time goes along, maybe, you know, it's, it's only been, what, uh, 20, 25 years. It's been guys that are truly just long snappers that uh, that's all we do. So we'll see as time goes along. I don't, I don't know if it'll happen because I don't know if we play enough plays. I don't think we impact the game enough like, uh, like a Devin Hester does, you know, touching the ball as many times he did in the game. But I think, yes, we are an integral part to the game. I think there's one reason, a big correlation why you can look at uh, field goal kickers' percentages are way up. And, you know, obviously they're getting better, stronger legs, better teaching, better technique. But I do think a lot has to go into the snap and the hold and the placement of the ball where it's much more consistent that, you know, say here, I don't want to take anything away from Jay Hildenberg, and that's another guy I think should be in the Hall of Fame. But Jay Hildenberg was the starting center for the Bears in 85, and he was a long snapper as well. But he spent so much time practicing center and only a few snaps to Kevin Butler on the side. He, I guess he used to, I know it did. He used to drive Kevin Butler nuts, but he couldn't get more reps with him. And I think if you got more reps with their long snapper like they're doing now, their numbers are better because of that. And I think I think the same thing with punting. They know the ball is going to be on the hip. They understand they might face right. They're going to punt left, and you can put the ball on the left hip. And next thing you know, the returner's on the wrong side of the field, and that's changed the game. But you know, not as drastic as a guy like Devin Hester. But uh, I think time will tell. I don't see it happening, but uh, I do think that the long snapper position needs to be recognized a little bit more because they are such an integral part of the team. Yeah, the tough part is there's absolutely no stats. Right? No, there's not, and it's just it's a, it's a visual thing. It's a coaches know, players know, uh, and then it's you know it's just it's tough to even if you were to vote on it for the Pro Bowl that the fans really don't know. But do they know that much about offensive guard play? I don't think they do. I think your average fan doesn't, but your you know your your stat guy, your guy that's watching every Sunday, a hardcore guy might a little bit. But uh, yeah. it is a tough thing, but. You know, coaches and coaches and players know, scouts know, GMs know, and that's why guys get cut and move on, and, and you bring in guys to compete. Well, Patrick, we'd like to thank you for joining us and wish you the best of luck going forward with the Patrick Manley Award. 
Thanks for joining us. Well, thanks, guys. Great talking to you. Thanks, Patrick. Patrick, don't hang up yet. You still with us? You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, there's our final whistle, the big whistle from Robert in the, behind the glass. That's the two-minute warning. Before we leave for our pre-training camp July break, let's see if Rick can, Rick can run his final two-minute drill like Tom Brady on Super Bowl Sunday. Rick. Should just Josh Gordon receive his 13-second chance to play in the NFL? That's what the Patriots will plead at the NFL. With Gronkowski gone, Brady needs a new go-to guy. Will Alex Smith ever play another down of football? A similar injury ended the career of Joe Feisman. I believe it will also end the career of Smith. Will Colton Kaepernick ever play another snap of pro football? I think Smith on one leg, one leg probably has a better chance than Kaepernick on one knee. What does it say about pro football that Ken John Barner has gotten two straight Super Bowl rings and Dan Marino has not? It says life is easier as a backup. Others do the heavy lifting and you get the ring. If Gronk was still playing, would he be flagged on every reception under the new rule? Not every reception. Whenever I watch, he seemed to be running quite a few routes uncovered for Tom Brady to find. Jameis Winston has thrown 58 interceptions in four years. Throwing pains or throwing pains? I would guess color blindness. He always seemed to throw the old man no matter what color his jersey. Are Winston and the Bucks at a five-year crossroads if he keeps throwing those picks? Winston and the Bucks may be, but Bruce Arian certainly wouldn't. He'll move on in a nanosecond. Will the XFL survive where the Alliance did not? Yes, the XFL already has TV money in the bank. The Alliance didn't have any money, TV or not, in the bank. Is there truly a market for minor league spring football above the Dixon line? I believe those of us down south call that the Ivy League. Everyone said, don't play Aaron Rodgers. Tells Packer coaches they need to not disturb him. Is running the play that's called that disturbing? Unless as Dan Marino, Drew Brees, and Tony Romo. Last question until we go for a big break. Saints wide receiver Michael Thomas wants $22 million a year to remain in New Orleans. Would you pay him, Goose? The question is, does Drew Brees want him paid? That's the end of the game. Well, that's it for us. Thanks to Oklahoma's legendary coach, Bob Stoops, long snapper. Well, that's it for us. Thanks to Oklahoma's legendary coach, Bob Stoops, long snapper Patrick Manley, my pal Rick. And everyone at home, in the car, on their yacht, or wherever you're listening to Talk of Fame Network. We'll be talking to you again soon.